This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Welcome to a happy edition of Rico Bronia, the Mets podcast. Evan Roberts from Carton Roberts on the fan. Pete Hoffman with me as well. Uh, it was another series to feel good about. Another day as a Met fan to mostly smile. There are some concerns. Obviously, Jeff McNeil dealing with that hamstring issue during the Monday afternoon game against the Marlins. But you went into this homestand after that wonderful 500 trip and said, okay, you tread water on the West Coast. Now you got a tough Brewer team. You got a a pretty good pitching team with the Miami Marlins. You got seven games at home. Now let's do better than just 500. Give me a five and two homestand, which I think was a very reasonable expectation going into these seven games against Milwaukee and Miami. And they walk away with the beautiful five out of seven. And it got dicey a little bit. You know, I remember we talked after the Milwaukee series about how ugly things felt in game three, especially with Tyler McGill going down with the injury, with the bullpen needing to step up, with the Mets having a rally from behind. And they did a fine job of doing that. What I loved about in this series is after losing on Sunday, which was a, should I call it a bad loss? It was a it was a kick in the balls kind of loss. You know, anytime your bullpen gives a game away, and that's what Seth Lugo did, and you hear the booze raining down at City Field, it's a loss you don't feel great about. You know, you have a chance to beat Sandy Alcantara. Francisco Lindor gets that huge hit. We'll get into these games a little bit later on. We'll break down each game. But to bounce back the way they did in the finale on a Monday afternoon, have David Peterson show guts, get himself in and out of trouble throughout the day, was a really good, and again, 2022-like Met victory as they bounce back after a loss. A lot to get to. We'll talk about J.D. Davis's inability to hit a fastball, the Mets getting hit for the 500th time this season, the injury concerns for Jeff McNeil, needing protection for Pete Alonso, and all that. But let's start off with the opener of this series against Miami, where we learned that Francisco Lindor's mom needs a season ticket. That's the lesson we took at a Friday night's game. It was an emotional story. Francisco Lindor's mom is here. She's seeing her son play baseball in person for the first time as a New York Met. And right from the freaking get-go, we're watching Francisco Lindor belt a three-run home run into the black. We're watching Francisco Lindor look great defensively. That beautiful play against Jazz Chisholm in the third inning. It's like all of a sudden... We saw superstar Francisco Lindor. And it's funny. I was listening to the Midday Show produced by the very wise Peter Hoffman. And Tierney and Tiki were talking about Lindor. And I thought it was a very interesting conversation. Because they were talking like, are you happy with Francisco Lindor? Is this what you expected from Francisco Lindor? And it's funny. On a day-to-day basis, my views on Lindor change. For example... When the Mets are playing the opener of this series against the Marlins on a Friday night and Lindor is hitting a three-run bomb in a center field and he's making all these great defensive plays, I will say to myself, like I did Friday, that's the Francisco Lindor we traded for. That's the Francisco Lindor we expect. And then there are groups of games, streaks of games, where Lindor looks not great defensively, where he makes miscues and balls are going under his glove, And he doesn't show you that much offensively. So I think Lindor, even though he's now been here and this is his second year, 
believe it or not, this is my opinion, we're still in that getting to know phase of Francisco Lindor. Like, I feel a year and a half into watching Lindor every day, I can't define him that easily. Like, there are days in which he looks like a superstar, and then there are days in which you say, we're paying this guy $300 million? Is that a fair takeoff? Do you feel that way about Francisco? I do, but here's the thing is that we have such a long way to go with him. Like, he's not going away anytime soon, so I feel like the leash has got to be longer on him. I feel like we can't just uh, evaluate this in like a, a, a week-to-week evaluation. It's got to be like three or four years before we're like, all right, this is what we're going to get. Yeah. Oh, no, I think that's fair. I think it's just like his season this year. You can't deny the amount of RBIs he has. And we'll touch on Buck's comment that he made and the context of Buck's comment because I thought that was very important in his discussion about Lindor's RBIs and comparing it to Judge. But Lindor has had... And you really can't tell unless you watch a guy every day. He's had a really streaky season. And a lot of guys are streaky. I mean, it happens. Like, watching Giancarlo every day on the other side, you notice how streaky Stanton is. But Lindor's had a very, very streaky season where there are days and you say, that's an elite-level shortstop. That's why we traded for him. And then there are weeks sometimes where he goes through these massive slums and he's not that great defensively at times because that's another phase of a game that you really can't kind of judge till you watch a guy every day. So he's been very streaky in his time here. And I, I throw away year one. Year one was a disaster. And I think it's okay to throw away year one. I threw year one away by Carlos Beltran. They get a bad first year. And I think when we judge Beltran's legacy, we can look past the fact that in year one he was a disaster. But on Friday night, Lindor sets the tone with that three-run home run. And I mentioned this on the last edition of the Rico. We get good cookie, mostly good cookie, and then we get really, really bad cookie. We got ourselves good cookie. Not great cookie, not dominant cookie. We got good cookie on Friday night. And here's what good cookie does that I love. He'll put guys on base. Like, he's not going to mow you down. He'll put two guys on base in the first inning. But you know what? He'll get a big out. He'll get John Birdie to ground out. He'll put a couple of guys on base in the fourth inning. But no problem. He'll get Williams, Ostadio, and Jacob Stallings out. And that was the story of Carlos Carrasco. And that's really been the story of his season. He's had a very, very good year. I mentioned this the last time. I think his numbers don't even give him justice. He's now got a record of 8-2. and two, And while I think win-loss records can be really overrated, more times than not, Carlos gives you a really good performance. And that's exactly what he did on Friday night. But here's what I really love in Friday night's victory. Luis Guillerme hits a fly ball to very, very deep left center field. And Brian De La Cruz clearly doesn't make the play. If you remember this play, he leaps up. It bounces off what appeared to be his glove. He falls on the ground, and then he catches it. And so Alan Porter, the third base umpire, because he's clueless, says, oh, my God, he caught it. What a catch. Now, when you look at the replay, you clearly see it bounced off of the fence, and he happened to catch it off of the fence. But because Alan Porter made the signal that it was caught, everybody had to hold up. Mets challenge it. It's clearly overruled. And then Alan Porter decides to put Guillerme on first, to put Canna on second, and put McNeil on third. And it sucks, and it was unfortunate that a run didn't get the score, but he absolutely got the call right. Unfortunately. Unfortunately, he got the call wrong to begin with, which led to the fact that you can't assume Jeff McNeil's going to score. So it was one of those scenarios that was really, really unfortunate because the Mets deserved a better fate. They deserved to tack on to their 3-1 to lead. But instead, because you can't assume McNeil's going to score because the umpire made a signal that the guy was out, the Mets have the bases loaded and nobody out. And as this is happening, and I'm realizing, all right, the Mets got a bad break. They didn't get screwed. They got a bad break. This was the game. Because you got bases loaded, nobody out, 3-1 to game. Just mow them down. Drive a couple of runs in, 5-1 game, this game's a blowout. If you don't score here, and we've seen many times in the past where you don't score there after there's a bad break that goes your way, well, now all of a sudden it's a 3-1 game in the seventh inning, and you could completely see this bullpen blowing it up. And us looking back at that sixth inning as a missed opportunity. But what I loved was J.D. Davis poked that RBI single, and even after... The next two Mets were recorded out. Tomas Nito struck out what else is new. And Brandon Nimmo couldn't drive the run in. The Mets draw bases loaded walk. That was Starling Marte. 
Lindor gets hit with the bases loaded, but that's a good hit batsman because it's a one-two pitch. And then Pete put, Pete puts the game away with the grand slam. Good night. See you later. Mets have themselves an easy victory. And it was mostly based on taking advantage of that sixth inning. What could have been a bad sixth inning of, uh-oh, the Mets didn't get the break to go their way. They take advantage of it. Alonzo hits the grand slam. He tacks on some more RBIs. He's had a monster season. And it turns into a nice, easy, deep breath kind of victory. I thought that was great. Now, the negative is the Mets got hit four times. What else is new? Lindor being hit ahead of the count or behind in the count in the sixth inning, that's, like I mentioned, that's a good hit batsman. What was a little odd is that Pablo Lopez, who starts for the Marlins, had hit nobody throughout the season. And he hits two guys in the game. And that's where, for all the talk about, well, the Mets get hit, a lot of it's a coincidence. And I do think a lot of it is. A lot of it's just pitching inside. And a lot of it is. It doesn't look good when you got a guy on the mound who hasn't hit a guy all season long, and all of a sudden he's hitting two Mets. And the Mets get hit four times on Friday. And that would continue to be a storyline. The Mets get hit a lot. And, you know, I'm sick and tired of having these discussions because there's no great answer to this. Charging the mound, I guess, is an option. I've said that's a better option than just hitting random guys on the other team. Like, what are you going to do? You're going to hit Avasal Garcia? going to hit John Birdie because you don't like his face? You could hit John Birdie. Don't you have John Birdie on your fantasy team, Pete? Aren't I facing him this week? Yeah, well, he went one for five today. But, yes, I, he's very fast. So, you don't, you don't want him on base. That's true. If you drill him, he'll just go steal second and third. <laughs> I Look, I don't have a great answer for this other than this is a trend that's continuing. This is not something that went away in April. Didn't go away in May. It's the middle of June. It's late June. The Mets are getting hit every single night. But a good victory, a good way to start things off in the opener of this series. Game two of this series continued with Lindor. Again, I love his mom. His mom should go to every freaking game. I'm willing to donate my season tickets. Lindor hits that two-run home run in the third inning. Taiwan Walker was, was awesome in this game. He was really, really good in this game. And the other thing that you noticed in this game, and it's been a season long, and that's why this injury scares me, is how freaking clutch Jeff McNeil has been this season. And that's the biggest difference from Jeff of last year and Jeff of this year. Jeff McNeil, with two outs and runners in scoring position, is a damn machine. In the second inning of this game on Saturday, where I took both of my boys, both Spence and Jet, my two sons were in the building to see New York Met baseball. They have two on, they got one out, Eduardo Escobar just misses one, gets under one, hits it to right, And Jeff McNeil does something he's been doing all season long. Two outs, runners in scoring position. After the Mets fail with previous opportunities, he says, don't you worry, I got you. And I looked it up because I was curious. I know Jeff McNeil's been clutch this year. So I played a game with myself. I said, Evan, what do you think Jeff McNeil's hitting with runners in scoring position? And what do you think he's hitting with two outs in runners in scoring position? So my guess with runners in scoring position, I said probably 330. Two outs in runners in scoring position, 340. Very good numbers, right? Runners in scoring position, he's hitting 348. It's a little bit better than I thought. Runners in scoring position with two outs, Jeff McNeil is hitting 411. 411. It feels like there have been so many examples of the Mets getting an RBI opportunity, somebody failing, and then Jeff McNeil saying, don't you worry, I gotcha. It's happened absolutely consistency, consistently all season long. So the only kind of negative in this game was really the scariness of Edwin Diaz in the ninth inning. And I don't want to kill Edwin. Edwin survived Thursday, and it was weak contact on Thursday. On Friday, or on Saturday, I should say, the second game of this series, he gives up a base hit to John Birdie, strikes out a couple of guys, gives up another base hit, gives up a stolen base, so it's set up where tying runs on second with two outs. But look, Edwin Diaz bailed down, he got the big out. That's all you could ask for. As much as I would love the the nice and easy, one, two, three, no stress, we're all feeling good, save, as long as you get the freaking job done, that's all that matters. And to Edwin Diaz's credit, he got the freaking job done on Saturday. 
and the Mets were able to win another game in this series and makes you feel good going into Sunday and Monday. All right, split the last two games and you got yourself a five and two homestand, which gets us to Sunday. And Sunday was Sunday was a reminder. That's what I would say Sunday's game was. Sunday's game was a reminder that there is not much you can trust in this bullpen. We are not that far removed from Seth Lugo being one of the more reliable guys in this Met pen. Now, Seth Lugo, who's a free agent at the end of the year, by the way, so just proof that not everybody has great seasons and contract years. We make that assumption, oh, just get him in a contract year. He's going to be fine. Seth Lugo, three seasons ago, in 2019 and 2018, was a top reliever. Even last year. Like, I know his numbers weren't utterly brilliant, but I thought he was a somewhat reliable reliever a year ago. This year, you can't trust him. His strikeouts are down. He gives up home runs. He puts guys on base. He's just not the same reliable guy he once was. And so, look, this isn't all on Seth Lugo because really the way this game transpired was Buck Showalter was put in a spot, some by his own kind of fruition, fruition, tuition, whatever, his own Jewishin. What's the word? His own intuition. Into, now, you know what? I don't freaking know. It's late. I'm tired. What do you want from me? Tuition is for school, so I know that's not right. <laughs> yeah, it's not that. <laughs> and Jewish is a word I just made up. Puition, I, I think my son uses. Uh, and tuition, you're right, is for schools. Volition. Volition. That's the word, volition. He made a decision from his volition <laughs> that Edwin Diaz, he didn't want to use in this game. And he didn't want to use Drew Smith in this game. So he has a game in which... I prefer not to use my closer and I prefer not to use my most reliable reliever, not name my closer and drew Smith who did a pretty good job the day before. So after Lindor comes through with a really, really clutch hit, remember he came through with the RBI single after the Marte triple and real quick on that triple. It was odd. Marte doesn't run hard out of the box because he's still dealing with the issues, the physical issues. So Marte is kind of lollygagging is not the right word. He's not running his hardest out of the box. But then when he could taste the triple, you could see he turns the afterburners on. And my favorite part about that triple is when Joey Cora dove in a third base with him. I thought that was adorable. That's like something I would do with my son. Like, all right, you're going to dive in a third? I'm coming with you. So Marte gets the triple. Lindor gets that huge RBI single, which was great. Clutch hit by Lindor. RBI number 52. Everybody's happy. You got a one nothing lead. You're nine outs away from winning you have a chance to beat Sandy Alcantara, who's probably the Cy Young Award winner in the National League so far. And Buck Showalter decides, again, because Drew Smith's not available, because he doesn't want to go to Edwin Diaz, let me push it with Chris Bassett. And I love it, by the way. I want to point this out. Anytime you push your starting pitcher, I'm always going to be a little bit partial to you. Because I'm old school. And Chris Bassett was coming off an inning in which he had pitched an effective inning. He was helped out by some pretty good defense. They had to strike him out, throw him out, double play. But before that, Bassett had retired like eight in a row. So Chris Bassett looked like he was in control. His pitch count, I think, was about 98-99 going into that seventh inning. But you know what? You're facing the Miami Marlins. You're not facing murderers row. Go get through it. He gives up the leadoff hit to Rojas, and I'm thinking, all right, eh, I want to give him one more batter. Okay. Gets Lewin Diaz to pop up. All right. Here's where I guess I would differ with Buck, even though I love the fact he pushed him. He gives up the base hit to Jacob Stallings. Jacob Stallings sucks. Unless he's facing Edwin Diaz in Pittsburgh, he's not much of a hitter. So when Bassett gives up that hit, and now there are two men on base, there's one out, that's the time I pull the trigger. With all that said, Seth Lugo was going to suck, so maybe it wasn't going to matter either way. But the walk to Brian De La Cruz I thought was... One batter too long. But Buck was in a tough spot because if he's not using Smith and he's not using Diaz or he prefers not to use Diaz, which I guess means he's not using Diaz, you're kind of stuck with Adovino. You're stuck with Joelli, who he had used already. Well, no, he hadn't used Joelli yet. So you're stuck with Otto. You're stuck with Joelli. You're stuck with Seth Lugo. Those are really the three relievers you're going to go to. And at that point, 
You're not going to Joely to face Jacob Stallings. You're probably going to go to the righty because you got right-hand hitters coming up, even though Jolie's had a reverse splits. He's actually done a pretty good job against right-handed hitting. So I thought having Bassett face De La Cruz was one batter too much. And here's the problem. Even though this is still all on Seth Lugo, or mostly on Seth Lugo, and Seth Lugo probably blows this game either way, when you bring a guy in, bases loaded one out, you aren't giving him much of a margin for error. So when Seth falls behind Gerard Encarnacion in his Major League debut, he's putting himself in a tough spot. And obviously he hits the Grand Slam. And not that the game's over at that point, because the Mets have shown a great ability to come back. But it was a city field kick in the balls. And the crowd, even though it was Father's Day, even though the Met fans should be very, very happy, the Met fan got testy. I'm not a booer, but there were a lot of there was a lot of boos raining that on Seth Lugo. But what made it worse is, all right, you give up the Grand Slam. It's a 4-1 to game. It's probably over, but it's not definitely over. Can you just get through the seventh inning? What made it worse is he walks Chisholm. He gives up the RBI double to John Birdie. And it's like, dude, can you just get through the freaking inning? You've already blown it enough. And then the ninth inning was also frustrating because Eduardo Escobar, and I'm starting to lose my patience with Eduardo. He had a decent day on Monday, but um, you know, started to say to myself, all right, Eduardo, you're going to hit, you're going to field. When's this happening? Because his defense has been shoddy. He makes an error that starts that inning, and then Jazz Chisholm's lucky enough to hit that very soft contact RBI double, but the bad defense put them in that position. And the Marlins are really able to add two additional insurance runs, even though the Mets showed that pulse in the seventh inning. They start to rally. Jeff McNeil, boom, right out of the gate, double up the alley. Luis Guillerme, boom, RBI single. Even in the ninth inning, they get back-to-back walks and do nothing. So the frustrating part was the tack-on runs that the Marlins were able to add. But look, you're not going to win every single game. I, I totally get that. And what was really important was to come back on Monday afternoon and respond. And that was a good victory. I know Rodgers hasn't been the same guy as he was a year ago. And the Mets blew an opportunity in the first inning when they had the bases loaded and nobody out and couldn't score. But David Peterson did a tremendous job getting in and out of trouble. The Mets were able to take advantage of some shoddy defense, some soft contact, and they got themselves a nice little 6-0 victory on Monday afternoon. They got hit a few more times. J.D. Davis got hit in the hand. And I thought for a second, after J.D. got hit in the eighth, that maybe they would respond. But you're responding with what? By hitting Gerard Encarnacion? Like, what exactly are you doing? And with Yoan Lopez on the mound, because he pitched the ninth inning of the 6-0 game, you can't even tell if he's trying to hit somebody, as we saw against Kyle Schwarber earlier in the season. Like, you can't even tell if that's his intention. So, look, it's happening with so many different teams. It's happening with the Marlins. It's happening with the Nationals. It happened with the Cardinals. There are so many teams that have hit Mets that it's not as if it's one team that you could kind of look at and say, okay, that's my enemy. They're taking too many liberties. But it is happening on like a daily basis where Mets are being drilled. The biggest concern, though, out of the Monday afternoon game is Jeff McNeil. The Mets have themselves depth. Luis Guillerme has done a great job and deserves to play. So if McNeil has to miss a couple of days going into the two-game series against Houston, giving Luis Guillerme more of an opportunity to play second base is not a terrible thing. First of all, he's a magician defensively. Watching Luis Guillerme play defense is a pleasure. How good is he defensively? I love watching him. He puts bat on ball. He gives you those long quality at bats. So if McNeil being out leads to more opportunity for Luis, that's a good thing in terms of the depth. But like I mentioned earlier, McNeil has been so clutch all season long. And what I love about this, and Buck's done a great job, is that he'll play second base, he'll play left field. He's not affected by where he plays in the field. It never has affected him. He also hits him everywhere. Hits him fifth. Hits him eighth, hits him seventh, hits him sixth. So hopefully Jeff is not out for a very long time. Buck did not give a lot of details in his postgame presser. But Buck said something interesting in his postgame presser. And this goes back to something I know the morning guys talked about, the midday guys talked about, we touched on it a little bit, which is that Buck made a comment about Lindor having more RBIs than Aaron Judge. So I'll take you through my day. 
I, I read the comment in John Heeman's article in the New York Post. I heard the morning guys talking about it. And I'm a real stickler for context. Like, I just don't like to read quotes and then talk about it. I like to hear, well, okay, where'd the quote come from? So I immediately contact Big Mac and Loogie on our afternoon show and say, can you find the audio of Buck making those comments? They can't find it. I can't find it. I'm looking everywhere. We have a TV deal with SNY. So I said, call up SNY. So SNY, they take like five hours to respond. At some point late in the afternoon, they supply us with the audio. And context is king, people. So if you haven't heard the audio, I'll explain exactly what it is. John Heyman, who I like John, is writing an article about Mets versus Yankees. Okay, it's a big topic of discussion because both teams are really good. The Yankees are the best team in the American League. The Mets are the best team in the National League. So John says to Buck, basically, hey, you keeping up with the Yankees? To which Buck gives a politically correct answer. Well, yeah, I got a lot of friends there. And then you hear Buck sort of get agitated. Like, you know, why are we talking about the Yankees? I'm the manager of the Mets. So he makes a comment like, hey, the camera's off. And very quickly, the Mets say, uh, Howard Kaufman, who's the head of PR, says, no, no, the cameras are on, Buck. And he's like, no, no, okay. And, and then he goes on just kind of talking about the Yankees and talking about, well, you know, Francisco Lindor's got more RBIs than Aaron Judge. So it wasn't brought up out of nowhere. It wasn't like Buck said, I got this great idea. It was that he was being asked about the Mets versus the Yankees. So I got home after the afternoon game, and like I always do, I always watch Buck's post games, just like I watch Boone's post games. And in Boone's, and I'm sorry, in Buck's post game, he talks about you know the injuries the Mets have dealt with in the rotation, how Trevor Williams is going to make the start tomorrow, how Max Scherzer may be back Sunday, and he wonders aloud. I'll try to do my Buck imitation. He wonders aloud. Does any team ever get through the whole season with just five starters? Oh, the Yankees do. That's why they don't lose. <laughs> so now I think the Yankees are on his mind or something. And I'm not sure if a reporter maybe called out the Yankees and said, yeah, the Yankees. Because Buck wondered, hey, what team gets through a season with five starters? Very few teams do. I think the Cubs did in 2016, but it's a very rare thing. So then Buck says, Oh, the Yankees. Well, that's why they never lose. So Yankee fans can take that however the hell they want. Buck, Buck tries to give you a little personality in these post-game pressers because he doesn't want to give you information. That's really the truth with him. He doesn't he want to tell you anything. And I don't, I'm not begrudgingly like mad about that. Like I understand from a competitive standpoint where you don't want to give too much information. As we discussed last time, he lied to us about what he said to Edwin Diaz on the mound in the Brewery game. So I think the way he offsets not telling us much is by just having a sense of humor. He's a funny guy. I don't think he was out there trying to make a point about Lindor and Judge. I think it was more you're asking me about the Yankees. And I think he also wants to defend this guy. Francisco Lindor is going to be the most scrutinized player on the New York Mets. He just is because of the money he makes, because the expectations attached to him. And so I think Buck realizing that he's going to go out of his way to put his guy over. And that's what I think all that was about. As far as Scherzer's concerned, Max is going to make his first rehab start Tuesday night in Binghamton against Reading. And then his day would be Sunday, which works out very, very well. You could have Max Scherzer make the start Sunday against the Marlins. That's great. I would hesitate and give him another rehab start. I just don't think with where the Mets are right now, at 45 and 24, that the Mets should be in any position to rush anybody back. I think you need to be smart. So while I'd love to see Max Scherzer back as soon as possible, I'd love to see Jacob DeGrom back as soon as possible. When I hear one rehab start, then he's good to go. I know Max thinks that. And I remember in spring training, his first spring training started through a ton of pitches. Can we be just like a little bit conservative? Sometimes it's okay to be really conservative. I think a lot of it matters where you are in a season. And right now, the Mets are 45 and 24. They are three games off their pace of the 1986 New York Mets. They are two games ahead of the pace of the 2006 Mets, a team that ran away with the National League East how many years ago now? 16 years ago. 
I can't believe 2006 is 16 years ago. Jesus, man. That's crazy. The point is, the Mets and where they are in their history, they're in a great place. They're in a great place record-wise. I know the Atlanta Braves are relentless. They're not going away. I stand by that. But I think you do need to be smart when it comes to the health of Max Scherzer and the health of Jacob DeGrom. And what does it really mean? That Trevor Williams makes one more start? Okay, fine. Trevor Williams is that swing guy. Great job by David Peterson. I think if there was any debate on, hey, should Peterson go to the bullpen or the minors and Trevor Williams enter the rotation, even though Trevor's pitched well in the times he's filled in, Peterson did a really good job in this game on Monday. So I think he deserves to remain in the rotation at least until they start to get healthier. And I don't know when that's going to be because after Max comes back, who's next? I mean, Jake still hasn't made a rehab start. He's going to need a bunch of rehab starts. So I I don't know where we are with Jacob DeGrom. But again, much like I'm saying with Max, got to be smart. You can be patient. It's okay to be patient. Now, a couple of things we're noticing watching this team every single day. Last year, what drove me nuts about J.D. Davis is he cannot hit a freaking fastball. Like, how many times did J.D. Davis have a 90-mile-per-hour fastball blown by him? Dude, it has become so noticeable over the last few games, specifically the game on Monday. This guy can't catch up with fastballs. So while J.D.'s had his moments since being given that everyday opportunity, let's just face it. Let's all come together right now on June 20th, June 21st. J.D. Davis is not the answer as the everyday D.H. for the New York Mets. He's not. Now, Dom Smith is back. I think that's good. Dom Smith should be back for two reasons. Three reasons. Number one, he went down to AAA and the guy freaking performed. He's not a AAA player. He needs to be in the major leagues. That's number one. Number two, there's an opportunity for him to play. J.D. Davis shouldn't be handed an opportunity every single day. Guy can't hit a 95-mile-an-hour fastball. And number three, I'm curious now with, and by the way, the real reason why Dom is back is the new rules have officially been implemented where you can't carry more than 13 pitchers. So when you just look at the way the Met roster is built, they needed to eliminate a pitcher. They haven't done that yet. Seth Lugo went on the paternity list. Once he comes back, I assume Yoan Lopez goes down to the minor leagues. But now they're actually going to have some guys on their bench. And right now, not to call it a spring training, because I think that's demeaning, there's a chance to see, can someone step up and be the everyday DH for this team? Can someone do it? It's not going to be J.D. Davis. Not that Luis Guillerme is a DH, but could Luis Guillerme prove he needs to play a lot more and push somebody else to DH? But then that leads us to third base. Eduardo Escobar has not been good. And it's always a challenge, especially when you sign a guy who's got a good track record. How long, how much time should you give a guy before you say to yourself, all right, I got to do something. I can't run this guy out every single day. Now, Escobar did drive in three runs in this game on Monday at a sacrifice fly on a two-run single, so he is coming off at least a quality performance, but he's hitting 230, okay? He has not hit for the pop we all expected when they gave him that contract, and his defense has sucked. Those things are true. I am not done with him today, but I would start to look at third base and say, okay, it's June 20th. You have about a little over a month before the July 31st trade deadline, is it possible you look at third base as an upgrade? You, know, you got to consider it. Guy's in 230s. Guy got, guy's got a 677 OPS. And again, his defense has been crappy. And I know everybody loves him. And he takes everybody to Foco de Chao. And that's fantastic. This is a production business. I'm sorry. That's where we are. You have to produce. So I'd put him on the clock right now. He's still going to play every single day. But I'd say, July, I'd say the All-Star breaks the time. Because right after the All-Star break, you got a couple of weeks before the trade deadline. Will this team need an upgrade at third base? Yes, they're scoring five runs a game. Yes, that's amongst the leaders in the National League. But there's clearly a hole in this lineup, and that is protecting Pete Alonso. Right now, when you look at this Met lineup, Brandon Nimmo at leadoff, beautiful. I kiss my lips beautiful like I'm a chef. Freaking beautiful. Guy gets on base all the time. Guy could give you extra base hits. Guy's got a little bit of pop. I love Brandon Nimmo as a leadoff hitter. It's great. Starling Marte is a number two hitter. Completely fine. Francisco Lindor, especially because he's got 52 RBIs. Fantastic. Pete Alonso would clean up great. One through four, they're set. One through four looks fine. It's who can protect Pete. Right now in this moment, 
the best answer is Jeff McNeil, only because he's been so freaking productive. But after that, where are you going? Mark Hanna? Eduardo Escobar? So it, it gets back to the whole, they're going to trade for a bat, and that bat's got to be a guy that protects Pete. Who's that bat going to be? Is it a DH? Do we now open it up to third base? Because Escobar hasn't been very productive. I'm not sure. It's definitely something worth keeping an eye on. But very good homestand. Look, five and two, you got to love it. Now you go to Houston. It'll be challenging with Trevor Williams on the mound against the Astros. They do miss Justin Verlander in this two-game series. They may get Justin, depending on the way the days fall, next week. Because remember, this Astro thing is a home-and-home, essentially. They play two games in Houston this week. Then they play two games in New York next week on a Tuesday night and a Wednesday afternoon. And they've got the Marlins mixed in there one more time. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what they do in Houston. It's weird going back to Houston. You know, the Houston Astros are a team we grew up watching the Mets play. Then they go to the American League. You almost forget they exist. Then they exist because they're a bunch of cheating bastards who you love because they're trying to stick it to the Yankees. And then when you play the Astros, it's like a special occasion. So it should be fun to see Yankees against, uh, I'm sorry, the Mets against the Astros for two games. And then the Yankees against the Astros. It's like a, it's an Astro-Yankee sandwich. Mets-Houston, Yankees-Houston, Mets-Houston again. I, mean, I got a freaking headache thinking about it. Anyhow, let's check you on Twitter at Evan Roberts WFAN and see what you have on your mind here on the latest edition of Rico Bronia. Peter Jefferson Hoffman, what you got? Uh, first of all, you answered a ton of questions. A lot of people were asking about the hits, like what do you, the, the hit batsman, what can they do? Uh, a lot of questions about just like J.D. Davis and other things. So you hit, you hit a lot, but I'm going to try to focus in on some things that you didn't touch on. Hit me. At, at side retired pod. Most important pitcher to resign this offseason, Bassett, Taiwan, or Carrasco? Well, that's a tough one because my view on that can change based on what happens in the second half of this season. I I never thought I would say Carlos Carrasco. By the way, real quick on Carlos Carrasco, if I'm not mistaken, the Mets have a team option on Carlos Carrasco. So I think we all assumed like, hey, there's no way the Mets would exercise that team option on Carlos Carrasco because he was coming off such a bad year last year. But I got to look that up. I got to double check it. I think the Mets actually have a team option on him for something like, I would guess, 14 or $15 million. But I'm going to try to look that up and see if I'm right about that. Uh, so, Which would make things easy because the Mets have so many starting pitchers that are eligible for free agency at the end of the season. Now, Taiwan Walker, who's got some weird vesting option, but he's likely to be a free agent. Chris Bassett, there's also a vesting option on, but again, also really confusing. I think based on, that's a good question. By the way, it's a vesting option in 2023 for, for Carrasco. How much? It's it's weird. So 2023 vesting option includes a $3 million buyout, vests with 170 innings pitched and healthy to start 2023. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Dude, these options are weird. I, You know what? I don't even understand. I think they all have weird options in their deal. I'd probably lean to Taiwan Walker based on the age. That's, I'd probably lean towards him. But look, if Taiwan Walker pitches in the second half the way he pitched last year in the second half, I'm probably not going to feel that way. But I think right now amongst those three guys, just based on the age, I'd prioritize Taiwan Walker. But folks, this offseason is... This offseason is going to be a headache, man, because the Mets have so many free agents and so many key free agents. Obviously, the headline is Jacob DeGrom, and we've got to see him pitch before we really can form an opinion on that. And then after that, Edwin Diaz is a free agent. Edwin Diaz is coming off this ridiculous, or so far, season's not over. He's had a very good start to this season. Edwin Diaz is going to command a lot of money. And then the other guy who I think is really important is Brandon Nimmo. Brandon Nimmo is one of the guys that makes this offense go. So we're going to do, Pete, we may have to do podcasts every single day during the offseason because there's so much crap to kind of like comprehend. So Med fans, my fellow Med fans, let us not think about the freaking offseason when the team's off to the second best start in the history of the franchise. Thank you. Uh, by the way, the just FYI, during this podcast, the, can I spoil something for you? 
Did you finish watching the Yankee game? Probably not, right? Listen, I'm, I'm very multi-talented. I was watching the Yankee game while recording the podcast. So Okay. So you know that they got the 50th win, right? Yeah, I know they got to their 50th. So I put some trolling out there for all the Yankee fans. So that's what I was doing in between your speeches and whatnot. <laughs> Just an FYI. How could you troll that's what, the Yankees? What are you trolling the Yankees about? 50, 50 wins means nothing. You Great, you're, you're a fantastic regular season team. It means nothing in the playoffs. That's all. Here's the Just problem. With put it back in reality. Pete, the problem with that is that <laughs> we are watching a baseball team that has the best record in the National League. Now it's... It's not by as significant a margin as the Yankees have the best record in the American League. And I think that all 45 wins matter. Like, I'm excited about the fact that the Mets are 45 and 24. So to say, hey, Yankee fans, 50 means nothing, that's like saying to us, well, 45 means nothing. And it means a lot. We're 45 and 24. We got the best record in the freaking National League. Does that not mean something to you? But here's the thing is, we don't have a track record of having a fantastic regular season every year. That's not that's that that this is new to us. Because we never have good regular seasons. That's the point. They do it all the time and they lose all the time. So just re- remind it. Right. Listen, I gotta bring them down a little bit. Okay. Let's get back to the tweets. I'm sorry. Um question from Anthony Leopards. Do you think the Mets will learn from the Yankees mistakes with Gary Sanchez when they make decisions on Alvarez? Well, what does that even mean though? That they're going to put an importance on playing the position defensively. And like if Francisco Alvarez hits for a ton of power, they're still going to prioritize how important it is to be a good um, defensive catcher, to be a good guy that, I mean, like what, what does that even mean in the context? Well, I, I, I would take it as, yeah, exactly. Like look at the difference that Sanchez being away from the Yankees has a, more of a positive effect the fact that Trevino is a professional catcher. Look at James McCann. We talk about what can the the Mets do to bring in a better hitting catcher. Yet James McCann has worked with this pitching staff so, so well. The- here's what I wonder, and and I don't know the answer to this. So I'm I'm literally wondering aloud. I think within the next three years they're going to bring in the Robo Home Umpires. I, I I think we all agree with that, right? Like that's gonna happen at some point, not next year, but within the next Probably. three years. Probably, okay. yeah. That's going to eliminate the whole pitch framing phenomenon. And I think that's where the Mets and the Yankees have benefited. You know, Tomas Nito is a tremendous pitch framer. James McCann, tremendous pitch framer. Same thing with the Yankees. And it matters. Like, we can't ignore the importance of it. If you're stealing, you know, seven or eight strikes in the midst of a game, that matters. Like, if you're behind 0-2 as compared to ahead 2-0, like, it's a completely different at-bat. So I do think the importance of a really good pitch framing catcher, it can't be overstated. So I wonder if two years from now, when that's been eliminated because there's robo umpires, like how important that's going to be. While defense behind the plate matters and having a good chemistry with your pitcher matters, I think that losing that ability to cheat and kind of a, and not cheat in a bad way, but acquiring extra strikes in a game how much that's going to matter. With that said, if Francisco Alvarez, and I haven't seen any evidence that this is the case. He's still a young player. He's still in double A. You have to work. I have to hope he's going to work his ass off with whatever the pitching staff is by the time he gets the opportunity to catch all the time, that catching matters. Like, it's really, really important. And if you feel it's hurting your pitching staff, but you can hit enough, you can become the DH. Here's the problem with Gary Sanchez that eventually happened. Mike Piazza was such a good offensive player that you were able to put up, and and I'm not comparing Mike to Gary because I thought Mike handled the pitching staff really well, but we were able to put up with mediocre defense because Mike Piazza was so good offensively. Gary Sanchez eventually wasn't good enough offensively to put up with his crappy defense. So if Francisco Alvarez, who's mashing the ball at double A, comes up to the majors and is subpar defensively, but the guy's going to hit 40 home runs a season, you're going to live with a few days a week where a guy is behind the plate and is not great defensively. The fact that there's a DH, which now exists, and I don't think we're ever going to see, for the most part, full-time DHs. I think we're away from that. Guys like Nelson Cruz, they're dinosaurs. They're gone. The DH is going to be used the way the Mets are essentially using it as a way station, as, all right, this guy will play DH a couple days a week, this guy will play DH a couple days a week, and if you have a big, bruising offensive catcher who's not great defensively, you can use him to DH two or three days a week. But I think we're a ways away from that because Alvarez has to come to the major leagues. He's got to hit. 
And let's see what he is defensively. Let's see how he works with a pitching staff. Well, well, to double down on that, Ed DeJesus, 27. Who? What do you think the best option is for DH? Keep JD out there, hunt for a bigger bat, or call someone up like Alvarez or Vientos? I would love to see Mark Vientos get an opportunity. I would love to see Dom Smith get more at-bats. I, look, we've seen J.D. Davis for a month, okay? Yeah, a little bit more than, a little bit less than that, maybe three and a half weeks. He is what he is. Like, I'm not convinced all of a sudden J.D. Davis is going to become this, you know, 325, 20 home run guy. So I think before July 31st, Dom Smith, Mark Vientos, I guess for now I would let Alvarez just continue to mash in the minor leagues, but probably it's going to lead to acquiring somebody at the trade deadline. Uh, I got a uh, tweet earlier today, unrelated, saying, what about Josh Bell? I heard you guys talk about Nelson Cruz last week. What about Josh Bell? Yeah, in theory, Josh Bell makes even more sense. He's a switch hitter. He could play first base. He's had a productive season. I think why I've leaned towards Nelson Cruz is that I guess I feel the price tag will be less. That because he's 41 years old or 42 years old and he's not having a monster year, that maybe you're not going to have to give up that much. Not that I'm afraid of price tags, but after last year where they gave Pete Crow Armstrong up for nothing because Javier Baez was a wasted rental, at least that's the way it turned out, I don't want to hoard my prospects, but I want to be smart about which prospects the Mets trade. So Josh Bell absolutely makes sense. Nelson Cruz absolutely makes sense. But I also am looking at how could I add a bat without really mortgaging the system and giving up too much. I I agree. Um, from... By the way, did you see O'Neill Cruz before? O'Neill Cruz is a stud. They finally called him up in Pittsburgh. Yes. Dude, he's 6'7. He's a big man. He hits the ball hard. He throws the ball hard. He's a freaking stud. That's like illegal. To, uh, <laughs> it, it, he looks so odd at shortstop, but that's just besides the point. I saw him hit a. He got a, a, a base clearing double today, and it looked fantastic. He runs so Yeah, no, he looks like an day. athlete, man. He should have been in the major leagues for weeks now. Uh, at Rick Samino 1. Evan, I'm begging you. It's statute, not statue of limitations. I've never said statue of limitations. Well, that's Rick <laughs> Sabinio. I probably have, but I believe him. Uh, here's a good one. You like this. Actually, I, I have a couple more. Hold on. Uh, this is more pertaining to City Field itself. What are your thoughts? Uh, Paul, Paul Ney. What are your thoughts on the new signage at City Field, especially the LED panels on the dugouts? Yeah, I know, dude, I noticed that a few weeks ago. Or not a few weeks ago, at the beginning of this homestand. I also noticed, because I sit um, in the 300s, and right in front of me, I noticed they put up a scoreboard. I'm like, where the hell did this come from? And I tried to lean over and look, and I couldn't tell. I think it looks great. I mean, look, I, as much as I love old-time stadiums, you know, more scoreboards, the better, because you get more information, uh, even though they're basically using it to promote old-timers day. At least that's what I saw. I- I'm excited to see what that big new video screen is going to look like next year. Cause I saw a rendering of it at the beginning of the season. Like they're going to take the right center field scoreboard. They're going to take the screen and center field and they're going to combine them. And they're going to make some type of mega screen, which is going to be epic to see. I can't wait to see that, but so far so good. I mean, I, I can't a- complain. A la Jerry's world type of thing. Like I that, think so. You, I, that, oh my Dude, God, this thing is awesome. going to be, so freaking monstrous. By the way, real quick, before we wrap up this edition of Rico, and obviously we'll give you another one after the two-game series against the Astros, uh, me and Pete Hoffman are facing each other in fantasy baseball. Mm. Do you want to make a side bet? Like, is there something I, along? I do. W- what would you like to put yes. on the line? All right. And I don't know if you'd be down for it. If, if I lose, I'll go to any crappy wrestling event you ask me to go to. That sounds like you're just trying to come to a wrestling event. No, I don't want to go to a wrestling <laughs> event. What I want you to do is there's a UFC event July 16th at the UBS Arena. I want you to go oh, there. Oh, God. Right, we could do other things, but that's what I had. Uh, I know. UBS well, we Arena. I, it's a pain in the ass to get there. I only go there for the Islanders. Now you want me to come to an MMA event? Listen, I mean, there's also... there's also uh, They come to MSG every year in November. You know, I understand. Listen, those are the summertime, too. I, 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 I respect it, but... that you love MMA. I really do. And I've tried to get into it. And I know this sounds like hypocritical because I'm a wrestling fan. <laughs> I just think it's so boring. 
I really do. I, I feel boring. Big, so boring. Like out of everything, you could say barbaric, too bloody, <laughs> but boring. <laughs> oh my god. That's not too barbaric for me. That's fine. Show me blood, break arms. <laughs> I don't care. I just. I'm so used to the constant action of wrestling and the way they script the ending to make it exciting. But I've... <laughs> I'm sorry. There's no chairs being, you know, hit over people's heads yeah. at the end of fights. I want to see chairs go over people's head. Now, yeah, if you, you if, just, if you gave me that, I'd be totally into it. You just missed out this past weekend. There was like eight knockouts, eight finishes. It was incredible. See, like you, you must be watching like the worst of worst. Fights. All right, I but will listen. agree that if I lose, I'll go to an MMA event. But if I win, I'm going to rename your fantasy team whatever I want for one week. Is that fair? That I'm totally down. That's fine. <laughs> and I'll right, let the and I'll let the listeners <laughs> of the Rico Bronya decide what we name your fantasy team for one week. Right now, his fantasy name, very lame name is nothing but the best. Where, yeah. where is that from? Do you just think you're the best? Is that where it's from? Oh, it's Frank Sinatra, first of all. But I had... Oh, yeah. Um, I didn't I, even think of that. Okay. And and then, I, dude, I've had that. That was my first ever fantasy team name. I've never changed it. For We're going on decades. Now. Well, I got news for you. If I beat you this week in fantasy baseball, <laughs> for one week, only one week, I will change the name, and then you can bring it back to nothing but the best. All right? I I appreciate that. And I, I will listen. I'm gonna do my best to beat the crap out of you. I need to now. Best of all, just for the record, I am uh, 12 games up in the division ahead of Pete Hoffman, so he's got a chance to cut some ground into me if he could have a big week this week in fantasy baseball. I do have Max Scherzer, so maybe you get to have to deal with Max on Sunday afternoon in Miami against the Marlins if he comes back. Well, the good thing is I can't imagine him getting six innings, so no quality start. That is true. I feel good about that. Well, then again, you could imagine him going six innings because he's Max Scherzer and he's effing crazy. And you're gonna tr- and, and he'll do anything to beat me. I bet that's on his <laughs> yes, mind. Yes, he's too. very motivated. Uh, <laughs> uh, last last thing, yes. last, last last Twitter question. One more. Go ahead. Because this is this is for you. Does WWE sell if McMahon has to step down? I, I've been thinking for the last few years Vince was going to have to sell. There's a part of me worried about this because even though, you know, I'm so used to Vince McMahon owning the company and he always wants big, strong, beefy guys to be champions. I The idea of Disney owning the WWE kind of scares me. The idea of NBC owning the WWE kind of scares me. But I'll go with this. I don't think Vince is going to sell. The more I think about it, I, I thought he was going to sell. Now I think he's going to hold on for dear life and he will never, ever sell the WWE. And when he's dead... Paul Levesque, Triple H, and Stephanie McMahon are going to run the show. So I thought when Vince came out on SmackDown and said, whatever he said, the signature is long, forever, friendship. That was his way of defiantly saying, I'm not going anywhere. You could sue me. You can scare me. You could do whatever you want. I'm Vince McMahon. Damn it. I'm not going anywhere. So he will never sell. That's my prediction. Well, thank you very much for all your tweets at Evan Roberts, WFN. We'll record another Rico right after the series against the Astros. That'll be sometime Wednesday night. They have a two-game series with them. And then after the three-game series in Miami against the Marlins. You can check out Pete with Tiki and Tierney during the week on WFAN. And me, 2 to 6.30 with Craig. Thank you for listening to Rico Brunia. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Brunia podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times. 